Clear for takeoff. Runway 28 left. Fly runway heading. Welcome to another brand new episode of Living in Flight, your go-to podcast for everything in the world of aviation. Exclusive interview conversations with industry professionals and enthusiasts. Strap on your seatbelt, put on your headset, and get ready for Living in Flight. Hey, it's Matt. Welcome back to another episode of Living in Flight. On this episode, we spoke with Trevor Rossini, the owner of In-Flight Pilot Training. We learned about his experience as an airline pilot and why he decided to leave it behind to start and grow one of the most successful flight schools in Minnesota. Drew and I had the opportunity to work for Trevor during our time as flight instructors and as good friend to us now as we continue to work with him on the podcast. We hope you enjoy this conversation. My name is Trevor Rossini, owner of in-flight pilot training here in the Twin Cities, Flying Cloud. Uh, I've been flight school owner for about 10 years now and grew up in Plymouth, Minnesota, Minnetonka High School graduate and went to college in uh, Montana of all places. What got you into flying? Uh, I was sitting in a college lecture hall. In, oh, you didn't know till college? I didn't know till college. Wow. I didn't have anybody in my family that was in aviation. I went to Oshkosh once when I was maybe like eight with a family friend in a 172. But other than that, I was just into cars and motorcycles and other things and the, cl- I, the classic lifestyle. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that I, most pilots like. I was sitting in a college lecture hall in 2008, and I was like, "Man, everybody in here, we're all going to leave with the same, same degree." And and the job market wasn't good, and so I started looking at alternate career ideas. And so you picked being a pilot, airline in pilot. 2008. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. Great times. <laughs> it was quite competitive then. What were you going to school for? Uh, initially, they make you declare a major like right off the bat. Sure. Where some schools don't. And so I was just business admin. Okay. To start. Just a classic and business degree. Where'd you do your flight training? Uh, I did my private out at North Star Jet in Missoula, Montana, oh, nice. MSO. Yeah. Uh, which was really fun. My my first instructor was a ATR captain for uh, Empire Airlines, which oh, does cool. feeder routes. Oh, yeah. So yeah. he would do Great Falls to Missoula back and forth. And then he they would- They still flying? Oh yeah. 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 He, he would, uh, have all this time during the day. And so he would just instruct, even though he had like 6,000 hours. Yeah. So it was kind of, kind of nice to learn from somebody who had a ton of experience and some real world application. Yeah. So how did you find being a pilot? How was that your, what you landed on when you were trying to differentiate uh, it, yourself? It came, it came in my discovery flight. I, I, went up on a pretty windy day and he was even asking, he was saying like, well, we might need to cancel because it's gusting to 28 or, yeah. or whatever. And I was like, Oh no, like I still want to do this. And so ended up taking that discovery flight. And I think I knew probably 15 minutes in, mm-hmm. like it just clicked. It was just like, I can get paid to do this. Yeah. Like done. And that, and that was that your, was, that was your first time in a small airplane at all. That was my, yeah. Minus like being, in that plane to Oshkosh when I was a kid, and sure. that was the first time I'd done airlines and everything. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. And I was just like, "All right, it's old." That's how you know that your instructor had more than fifteen hundred hours. He was willing <laughs> to cancel for something as light as Gus Twenty Eight. <laughs> yeah, coming from a seasoned airline vet. Can you talk to us a little bit about your airline career? Yeah, kind of just how uh, that how the the process you went. Yeah, so back when I started my training. The minimums were not 1,500. Uh, the minimums were about 500 total time. American Eagle, of all places, was like the place to be. Like everybody was gunning to get to American Eagle. Kind of the place to be again. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. Obviously, it's got a name change now. It's no Envoy. But for some reason, that was the hot point. Everybody wanted to get to some of the other places were like impossible to get into, which was. Is Envoy the original Eagle? Yes. Yeah. It might be. Um, yeah. They, they, mer- they had some, some merger or something buyout thing happened uh, where they got spun off into this subsidiary. Uh, I think American bought, I can't remember the exact story, but so that was, that was the beginning and that was kind of the end goal. And were they putting people right into a jet at the time or were they doing like a, they Brasilia still had, or something? no, they had the, uh, AT, I think they had ATRs as well. Okay, they were doing maybe. some Island flying. Yeah. Because they got shipped. They had the one, they lost an ATR in icing and they shifted all yep. the ATRs. There's to, some safety videos on yeah. that one. Okay. Um, uh, but the ERJ 145 was the, the, the golden ticket yeah. at that point. That was, 
the dream. And uh, so that was kind of the natural progression then. I think a lot of people were going that route. Some of the other airlines were hiring too. Um, and so I did, I moved back to Minnesota after I did my private and went through instrument commercial CFI and then did my double I MEI. And did you do that all at what was in flight or what became in flight? I did. Most of it was at in flight. And was it still called in flight? Uh, yep. Yep. And it was the interesting thing was I was looking for a school when I came back here, uh, at the time that had a multi and in flight didn't have a multi. And so I tried some other schools locally and didn't have the greatest experience. And at the time you needed a hundred multi. That was like the barrier to entry. And so did you want to do some ratings in the multi? I want to do all of it in the multi. Oh, okay. I was like, all right, I'm here for my instrument. Let's do it in the the seminal. That That was, I mean, it was so competitive. You had to have the time. Right. Right. And so I, I ended up getting a hundred hours multi. I ended up paying for time building in it after I got my double I and MEI and then, uh, was lucky enough to, to instruct it to and build some. And so at about... How long did that take you? So you first was your first lesson in 08? Yeah, my first lesson was 08. I did my private in 46 days. I went every day to the airport and That's just awesome. nail clocked <laughs> it up. It was in February. Wow. <laughs> did it in a February in Montana. Yeah, Walked uh, out. And somehow, somehow made it happen. But then I did the rest of it over the course of about a year. Okay. So uh, still pretty quick. So pretty quick. I did all my commercial time building in December, which nice. was kind of fun. <laughs> uh, and I would do a lot of it at night to try to get as much night experience. So yeah. I have a lot, a lot more night than, than a lot of people have, but yeah. So I went through all that, uh, ended up getting hired at in flight as an instructor. It was just kind of the natural progression at that point. I'd been flying all the planes and knew everybody. And it was a small operation at the time. There was maybe, three or four instructors okay. and like there's a random fleet of planes. There was a Satabria, a Sundowner, okay. a Cherokee, a 152. And then right near the end of that, they had a 172 M model. Mm-hmm. Uh, Those are in miles per hour, right? Yeah. 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 <laughs> That's what the M stands for. Yeah. <laughs> mighty, mighty, mighty 172. The N for knots, right? Yeah. Except the silent K. And so it was kind of a, a thrown a thrown together <laughs> fleet, but but uh it worked. I got my hours yeah. instructing and which uh, one of those was your favorite? Uh I had a lot of time in the sundowner. Okay. It was, just, yeah. it was a little bit more expensive than the other one, so I think it was a little bit more available. Sure. And it's a heavy plane. It's kind of like I've a never, Cadillac. I've seen them, uh, but I've never been in one. And so I did a lot of cross-country time, but I took one down to Dallas. And oh, like nice. Flew it, flew it all over the place. Went to Duluth a lot. Brought yeah. a lot of friends to Duluth for dinner. Like, yeah. You know, you got all this time to kill when you're time building. So right. I was like, let's go. Uh, and then around six, well, to preclude that, around 400 total time, when I was getting all excited to go play at Eagle, they jumped the minimums up to 750. Okay. And then it seemed to be this game where every time I would get closer now it was a thousand and then it just kept going 1250. And then it was finally the 1500 hour rule and everything. And so I ended up leaving in flight in 2012. Um, maybe it was late 2011 and went to great lakes airlines, uh, which was a really exciting place. <laughs> There's some, I've heard some crazy stories. There's a lot of pilots in the, the metro area that <laughs> went to Great Lakes that I know now. And yeah, I mean, they had, some, they had some random bases and weird yeah. places, but they were, they I think were, they were the, better in the 2010s than they were back early 2000s and late 90s. Yeah. From what I've heard. There, there's a lot of things uh, attributed to Great Lakes, actually, that are in the industry that a lot of people don't even know about. Like what? Um, like the, the red. Uh, paint around like the emergency exit windows mm-hmm. um and it says i can't remember exactly what it says but so you can read it upside down yeah. uh there was actually a lakes crash i think it was in iowa back in the 80s uh where the first responders came and they couldn't figure out where the exits were to pull them off <laughs> and so that actually came of of that Interesting. uh but but the essential air service stuff that they did uh definitely had a use and so they needed lots of pilots and they had a good fleet of planes and 
there was a lot of sketchy things that that you heard about it, and it was kind of one of those you had to believe it to see it. Yeah, and, like show well, you, up. Well, tell us one. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not. <laughs> uh, at training in in Cheyenne, Wyoming. The first thing I remember when I walked into a hotel is double occupancy. Oh yeah, in the hotel, uh, so we each had twin, used to be. We each had twin beds. Yeah, and in the bathroom, you could like see up into the ceiling to like the piping of the upstairs bathroom. But my sheets had cigarette hole burns in them, and I was like, "All right, like we have arrived. <laughs> yeah. this, is, this is the airline world. Yeah. All right." Like I thought, I had it bad at the Sinestra. Sounds like the first hotel i stayed at in redding california the paper line or the paper the yeah the red line or whatever it was yeah Yeah, and so it was just an interesting experience overall what Uh, airplane were they gonna have you on there? beach 1900 and as the fo you were required to do the passenger briefs and speeches and everything and so you would get up and say welcome aboard you know (laughs) in front of everybody welcome aboard flight they made you stand up and face everyone no no pa (laughs) you try to joke and be like all right we're going to hawaii you know if you're on the wrong flight now's the time to get off um (laughs) yeah (laughs) welcome to Vesalia. yes (laughs) yes and so uh i didn't do that super long did they do the training in the airplane at that time uh yep so yep. like your it was like hands-on training hands on, to fly, learn to fly it. Hands on. They had they had uh, a little sim time, but yeah, okay. the majority of it check rides and everything. So I know it used to plane. they used to only be in the airplane and they'd load like three or four people up in the back and you'd get yep. half hour, forty five minutes or whatever at it night. was. Yeah, at night. <laughs> when the planes weren't doing, being used. <laughs> doing steep turns and stalls with three people in the back, yep. just trying to hold it together. I've heard a handful of stories about that. And so yeah, somehow they they stayed around for quite a while, and then the fifteen hundred yeah. hour rule really took them out. I mean, it was the lowest paid; it was the worst yeah. working conditions. Uh, there was things that that I saw that was amazing that these things happened. Yeah, <laughs> and so I didn't enjoy it. So it kind of left a bad taste in my mouth, and so I actually came back to instructing, and I said. I'll just wait until I get my 1500 or something better comes along, maybe corporate. Yeah. And uh, that was in late 2012. So like May, June of 2012. And I was back at in-flight instructing, same fleet, same people, nothing had really changed, but it was really slow. Mm -hmm. And the owner sat us down two days after Christmas uh, and was like, I'm shutting the school down in two weeks. Like, thanks for, you know, thanks for coming and, and working with us. But I just got my dream job and I'm just not, I don't have the passion or the time to do this anymore. And I was like, wow, like I'm already being laid off. Yeah. You know, this is my first layoff in the, in the, in the industry. aviation world. Like, this is what they talk about. Like, I'm getting, <laughs> before you even yeah. made it. <laughs> yeah. And, and I knew I wasn't going to go instruct anywhere else in the cities just yeah. based on past experiences and, so I ended up like I was starting to look at schools in Arizona and all these yeah. things. And I, uh, it was just a, a very odd, odd time. Um, and so I started calling all my students to say, Hey, you know, we have two weeks left to finish you up before, you know, in-flight closes. And I got to one of my students that I just finished his instrument rating. And he said, well, you know, like I've been looking for a business to invest in. Like, why don't you take it over? And I was like, and you're like 23 years yeah, old? Yeah, I was 23. Yeah. And I was like, uh, I wasn't really thinking on that level, but <laughs> I mean, okay. And so I remember I went home and threw a little business plan together on Microsoft Word. It's probably like three pages. I still have it. And printed that's, it out. That's cool. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I should I should bring it in sometime. It'll yeah. live in a, Hang in a record, the, uh... record book somewhere. Yeah. And we met and I showed it to him and was like, this is what I think can happen. And he's like, all right, let's do it. That's awesome. And so in 2013... We bought in flight together in a partnership, and it was one one seventy two n and one one fifty two, and there was four of us, including myself. Was there any like lapse? So what you guys had like the Sundowner and the Cherokee mm-hmm. and stuff, and then right, he gave you two weeks, and obviously, you know, just getting paperwork and things, you know, finances and getting the airplanes. Like, what was that process like from going to him shutting down to you guys actually? Did he sell, did you guys sell the airplanes? Did he sell some airplanes? So what some of the, the airplanes contract? were leasebacks from okay. other customers and the, yeah. or for other owners. And so we just told those owners, hey, 
like we're going to try to standardize the fleet here. We can't have all these different, you know, plane types. And so yeah. most of them, their leases just got terminated based okay. on, based on the sale. And so they, they took those back and then we bought, uh, it was zero one Delta. Mm-hmm. And then Hell, uh, I did my private pilot check. Zero one Delta. <laughs> uh, it's kind of got some nostalgia to it. Yeah. And then, uh, there was another six, seven, seven, six, four was, uh, this Brown ugly one fifty two. Nice. And so we bought those two, just because of all the timing and, and how quick everything was happening, we ended up leasing them uh, for, I don't know what it was, maybe 60 days, I think, until like all the transaction stuff and paperwork and legalese could go through. And that was kind of the beginning. Were so those like, in-flight airplanes already? Uh, or were those, did you find a... They were. They, they just were on the showed up. Okay. They just showed up. So yeah. those two were. Nice. And... Yeah, so here we are. It's 23 years old. Got two planes, and I'm managing Dan Hushke, who's like yeah. in his 60s. Dan. Yeah. <laughs> and here I am, this 23 year old. I'm like, wow, I'm managing some guy who's like in his 60s who has, you know, 10 times the experience that yeah. I do. And uh, it was. It was interesting. It was kind of one of those moments where you're like, what did I just get myself into? Yeah. You know? And, uh, the funny thing was, and and not many people know this, but when when we started the partnership, he asked me, he's like, oh, okay, so, you know, I was thinking we could go 50-50 and like you bring, you know, half the finances to the table and everything else. And I was like, I have like $2,500 yeah. to my name. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like I can give you $2,000 and like, hopefully I survive next month. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so... So that was kind of a, an interesting start, but yeah, I gave it basically everything I had and was like, all right, let's see, let's see how this happens. What was your kind of like winning goal that kind of won this guy over in your business plan? Like, what did you have for the future of, of InFlight? Where, where did you see that it could go? I think the biggest thing was laying out that there wasn't a clear leader, Okay, like in the Twin Cities market. Yeah. Uh, there wasn't anybody who was really dominating and really had a good reputation. Mm-hmm. And so it was kind of this open opportunity of, hey, if we can come in here and build something that's unique, that has a good experience and good service and some of these things that, that other places lack, uh, like we might actually be onto something. And I mean, it took, it took a long time. It wasn't right. overnight by any means. And, yeah, and even go, to this, how did you go about growing it early on? Uh, yeah, what man. did you tackle first? That's like day you walk yeah, in the door, day, day, day one. Day two. You know, yeah, day, day two. One. I think the first things that we did was like paint. Like we painted the inside of the office. We put new carpet in. Mm-hmm. Um, Make it a little more we approachable. the airplanes. I mean, like really simple things. Uh, some of the things that we had been doing kind of stayed the same until I got a chance to be like, why are we still doing it like this? Yeah. Uh, I mean, we had tins for all the air, like a lot of places still do this. They have tins with the airplanes and the keys are in them. And mm-hmm. you go and hand write the times in of your start and end times. And yeah, it, uh, it was a lot. I was answering the phones. I was doing tours. I was being the line guy pulling planes in and out and fueling yeah. them. Yeah. Uh, so I would be there at 6 a.m. and leave, you know, at the end of the night or come back. <laughs> There'd be a lot of times I'd it'd be like a Saturday night and I would go do something you know, from five to eight. And then I would come back to in-flight and put planes away or fuel them for the next day. Uh, and so in hindsight, it's kind of like, I don't even know how we got here. Yeah. <laughs> Just with how many things. Well, what was the big break? Uh, like, what would, you, you know, there had to be some moment. Big turning point. Yeah. I mean, the marketing aspect was really big. I, I definitely pressed marketing pretty hard. Uh, back at the back in the was time, that social media flyers, a lot of social door media. Door, we had a hanger, good, we had a good base word of mouth reputation mm-hmm. um, from the previous regime, but it was very slow and like people just there just wasn't a lot of business that was. Was it mostly occurring. leisure pilots that just wanted to yeah, fly for fun? Yeah, yeah, it was, and there were some things that were actually the the previous owner. Uh, He's great, great pilot, great guy, did uh, a lot for GA, and he actually put together seminars, and InFlight was doing the largest seminars in the country, like over 100 attendees wow. a week, every Saturday. Oh, wow. And it was, it was great for the community, uh, but the down, and it was funny because when, when I took over, everybody's like, oh, the seminars are continuing, right? Yeah. And I was like, 
this guy is like 20, like the guy who's doing the seminar is the old owner. He was like 28 years old at the time, like 10,000 hours wow. and great, great public speaker, all these things. And I was like, wow, like, all right, like, I'm not going to be as good as this guy in, in terms of public speaking and everything else. And so I tried to continue it for a yeah, little bit. Yeah, you go watch them. They're on YouTube. Yeah. There's one of you reading the far right? <laughs> Yeah. And, uh, and so that was one of the big issues though, was okay. Now I have to wake up in addition every Saturday morning at 6 a.m. and go get donuts and make coffee and pull all the planes out of the hangar and set up 100 chairs and do all these things. And the, the one thing that's a big balance that people don't understand is there has to be the balance between business and hobby. Mm -hmm. And the issue with those seminars was none of them were active. Like I'd say maybe four or five percent of them were actually active customers. So here we are putting on this huge thing and it did help build the brand and, and was good for our reputation, but it was a lot of give and there was not a lot of reciprocation sure. in terms of support. Have you considered going back and doing that again? Yeah. I think at some point when we have our own building space, it'd be nice to, to actually do that and get cool. I mean, he had cool guest speakers come in some famous yeah. people and um, I'm sure just, you could get some super cool. Oh yeah. 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 There's, I mean, there's a lot of people willing to help. It just, at the time it just, it was, where's the time best spent and it just wasn't you Matt and, Matt and Drew from the living in flight podcast. Wasn't one of those things. And so that was probably my biggest focus was how do I turn this in from a kind of hobby business to an actual business? And that's where a lot of the growth started happening. So one thing I've been curious about is how do you kind of forecast demand with adding a new plane? Where do you, what do you kind of look at to say, this is, we're at the breaking point again. It's time for another plane. The demand will be there. Mm -hmm. I, I've notoriously run everything very lean, whether it comes to like in-house staffing levels for management and everything else. And so with planes, it's kind of the same way where if you have a fleet of two 172s, you can always expect that one's always going to be down for maintenance, right? So when you add a new plane, it's not actually like a net positive. You're just basically allowing more space for maintenance. And mm -hmm. so I wait until the schedule is so full that people are complaining. And then that's my indicator. Like, oh, you need more right. It's like they want to be booking, but they can't. Yeah. yeah. So once once I hear enough complaints, it's like a lot of people say this. Like once you hear something three times from three different places, that should right. be like your cue. Yeah. Of like, all right, it's time to make some action. Yeah. How do you judge the growth of a market in such like a niche activity right because you're like how thinking, did you know there yeah, were how did people you know, in how the city like, yeah how did you know this is what this place needs next right like because it sounds like you didn't have a complex so you guys really couldn't be doling out mm -hmm. commercial licenses at one point they would have to go elsewhere and then come back to learn the yeah, movies from you or we didn't get a complex it's like how, are, how do you look at as someone that's just growing a flight school and say it just seems, I guess I'm, I'm rambling now, but it seems like every decision you make is a gamble to an extent. And I, I guess I want you to speak more of like the data you actually look at or else if it's just a gut thing. A lot of it's more gut than data, uh, which is hard to believe. Have you made a wrong decision based off your gut? So far, I feel like I've had a pretty good track record. Uh, I think the one bad gut decision I made was getting a twin. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Um, it's just not a profitable venture. And Can you talk to us about took, the twin? Took me, yeah. Um, it definitely went down, went down a different road than I thought. But back to your original question, um, my goal wasn't to look at the demographics and find the people that wanted to be pilots. My goal was to find the people that didn't know that they could be pilots. Yeah. And so that's where my success has come into play is I could market and find those people and bring them in. Whereas the people that knew they wanted to be pilots, they were going to find us, you know, one way or another, they'd hear about us. Right. And so it was, how do I reach those people and show them that this is accessible and, and it's not as out of reach or far-fetched as you might believe it to be. Have you ever thought about advertising at the airport? Like MSP? Yeah. Uh, no, because. Envoy does. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, for that, that makes sense. Cause they're, their employees live all over the country, right? Yeah. But for what we're doing, there's so many transients in and out of there that the return on investment would be interesting because it's not all just Minnesota people. And mm -hmm. we're not really catering to out-of-state. We get out-of-state students, 
but it's not our bread and butter. So it's right. that's the other thing too. It's like where's the ROI the best on, on or is it the advertising? Because uh, one thing I will say as as a pilot, I never once got an in-flight advertisement or anything. I just looked you. I looked up flight school in Minnesota. It's because I knew you wanted to be a pilot. Well, thanks. I, appreciate, I, <laughs> I didn't appreciate, have to target you. I appreciate the sentiment, but no, I'm I'm curious. Like, I've never seen an in-flight advertisement out there before. Yeah, that's good. But isn't that where you drove? You know, I've heard you talk about driving the search engines so that you have enough stuff so that when somebody does type that in, yeah. Minnesota Flight School, yeah, can you talk about that? You pop up as yeah, the top, I mean, the top. at the time yeah. when when we started. Facebook was like rolling and that was the popular thing. Instagram didn't exist at the time. Groupon was really popular, which yeah. is so funny because those things are more obsolete now. Uh, and so SEO was the name of the game for a lot of businesses. It was mm -hmm. like, where's your search ranking and how many Google reviews do you have? And I think a lot of people, especially small business owners, they don't put value on those things mm -hmm. on marketing or on search engine optimization because the return takes a long time it's it's not a it's like planting a tree it's like right. it, you have to water it and you have to add sunlight and the conditions have to be right and it takes time to see those returns so some of the seo and facebook ads and things we were doing like some of those things we didn't see returns on for three plus years so yeah. it was it's a long long-term investment um but specifically, yeah, I wasn't targeting pilots. That wasn't my my intention. Was there certain like events or or shows or stuff that you were going to that you tried to hit every every time they were you know popped up? Like I know now that you guys go to like cars and coffee or whatever it is, mm -hmm. and like some of that stuff. Was there certain things that you guys tried to hit? We early tried. On we tried a couple. The issue was manpower because sure. it was basically me and then all the instructors. And so we had instructors that would help out and show up for things. We did open houses, things like that. Uh, but again, what I realized was that wasn't the best. It's, it's great for the community. It's great for aviation, but it wasn't the best use of time or capital mm -hmm. because for, for example, like there's, there's the air show at the, at the airport every year. Mm -hmm. So you have all these people descending on the airport. Well, if they know they want to be a pilot, us having a booth there, versus them just Googling it and doing the research like most people do these days. It's like, there's not a big difference. And so for 500 bucks with SEO and, and Facebook ads and Instagram and all this stuff, it's like, I can reach every person at that air show yeah. uh, on their phone <laughs> right. over and over and over versus them walking past our booth once and, and grabbing a sticker. Yeah. So yeah. I've tried to buy flights on Delta and in-flight pilot training comes up because the name flight is in there. It's <laughs> good. There's there a lot go. of power in SEO and names. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people don't realize what you name your business actually oh, yeah. plays a big role. Yeah, there's a flight school here that uh, on the field that you look up flight school and they're like everywhere. Mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. What's what surprised you in like this journey you've been on? What was what what's been easier than you thought it would be? What's been harder than you thought it would be? Who? Let's uh, say I wanted to open up a flight. Uh, let's say I wanted to open up a, com a competing flight school up at Anoka mm -hmm. one day. Right? What should I expect? Yeah, yeah. Uh, everybody talks about this, and and you hear about it. Is that margins are thin? It's not a like, the margin has to be on the instructor, right? Like it's it's give, a mix. When we give ground, it, it, it's got to be. It's a mix of instructors and plane and and other things that you sell, but the, so the margins are thin. And so it depends what your long-term goal is. If you want to have a flight school and you just want, you want it as your own income and you're going to be your own boss and you're going to work there full time and you're going to instruct, uh, you can make a decent living, but it's not going to be, it's not going to be something that you can like essentially set it and forget it and walk away from like, you're going to need to be involved. And so I think a lot of people misjudge that and think like, Oh, I'm going to own a flight school and buy this and you know, it'll run itself. And it's like, no, you got to be there, you know, pretty much every day to, to make it work. And so from a easiness standpoint, uh, I think the thing that I've seen, uh, I mean, everything's complicated and has its own, 
own way of showing itself. But the easiness, I think, is if you build it, they will come. Mm-hmm. And so the following and the momentum becomes easy if you do the hard work and you put in those hours and you do the things that other people aren't doing. And so that part came a lot easier and didn't really surprise me when I was like, oh, like we're building a really good reputation and people are showing up. And what does InFlight do that some other places don't do? I think the the biggest thing is we provide a great experience. Mm-hmm. And but that that's that's intangible. What is, is what is a what is a tangible? I mean, it's it's basically the same thing. You look at you look at why people it's psychology, why people do what they do, right? And why they choose certain brands over others. And some of it's just appearance. Some of it's they like what the brand stands for. But for for us, it's it really is the experience from start to finish. And it's because the product's the same everywhere you go. It's flight training and aircraft mm-hmm. rental. Like you can go anywhere and do that. But it's how are you treated? What's the quality of the instructor like? Like is everybody actually love that? Does everybody actually love their job? Mm-hmm. You know, like mm-hmm. it's these little things and the little details that get overlooked that make a big impact and provide like more more momentum with with getting more customers because word of mouth travels fast and obviously this is aviation and reputation is everything mm-hmm. and so the just getting those little things dialed in and doing the little things is probably the most important. Once you get someone in the door for a discovery flight, what's your completion rate on then getting them to become a student? Like what, what's harder to do is it harder to get them in for the discovery flight or is it harder to get them from discovery flight to student? I think it's harder to get them from discovery flight to student because a lot of people are curious about aviation or they just want to go. It's a bucket list item. Some people didn't really think they wanted to do it and they go take a discovery flight and they're like, I'm doing this. Yeah. And then there's other people, even bother with the discovery <laughs> flight. <laughs> other people are like, no, I know I want to do this. And they just jump right into it. But the, the big, I mean, the biggest hurdle, and this is true for pretty much everybody is it's either time or money. It's right. a shortness of either. It's somebody, somebody's working a full-time job. They've got kids, they're married, you know, like, mm-hmm or their kids are in college and they just don't have the excess, you know, discretionary income at the time. And so it's, it's one of those two things between time and money that seems to always get in the, in the way. So how do you like comfort a student that comes in and gives you one of those as their reasons for delaying or not, not being able to sign up in the next, Powerball. you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> 1.9. <laughs> <laughs> Gonna have many flight schools for that. Uh, it it varies. I think breaking down the scariness of it into smaller chunks helps mm-hmm. a lot. I think a lot of people get sticker shocked when you're like, here's your private pilot license, mm-hmm. you know, and it's going to cost, you know, $15,000. Like, whoa, that's a lot of money. But yeah. if you, if you break it down and you say, Hey, you know, the time commitment really is only, you know, two to three times a week for two hours of crack. And mm-hmm. each lesson is going to be a couple hundred bucks. Uh, some people seem to be able to to understand that more, but it's interesting because this is one of the only things I can think of in terms of like retail where you don't just walk in and buy it and leave. Right. Like yeah. it's, it takes commitment. And so you need somebody who's hungry to learn, who's mm-hmm. passionate about this, this adventure. And that's something that you can't program your customer to be, Right. you know, it's either, either they want it or they don't. And that's, that's the big difference. So where do you see in-flight going? What's the future? Yeah, the the future is obviously we've been growing a lot and, and renting space right now. Uh, we're going to have a flagship kind of headquarters building that, that resembles who we are and, and the product that we deliver. But the, the future will be more locations. And so mm-hmm. that's been on the radar for a couple of years. And it's it's really setting up all of our demographic data and taking all the past data that we have and figuring out where those markets are. Would it be in state or out of state? Out of state. Really? Uh, there's no, there's no reason to do another one in state. Really? Mm-hmm. Uh, we have people that drive from Rochester and Hudson and yeah, you know, yeah. all over the Metro. It's like, yeah. it comes back to the thing. If you build it, they will come. Right. You know? And so another sister market uh, to this one, that's similar size that kind of has the same open playing field where there's not a clear leader. Mm-hmm. Um, so those, those talks have been ongoing and mm-hmm. I think we'll see sooner than later that there will be more locations. 
What keeps you up at night? Uh, <laughs> Outside of the thought of the student pilot doing something dumb. Yeah, you know, when, when you own a business, nobody really teaches you <laughs> the emotional side of it. Or like, hey, watch out for these things. Or this is what it's going to be like. And it's something that you invest so much time and energy into. So it kind of becomes your your child almost, right? And so I remember in the early days when, you know, somebody might taxi an airplane and clip a wing and, you know, might hit something or just little, little things that happen in the, the, it's funny. One of our old DPs said that having a flight school is like having a daycare where you let children run around with knives. And so things are bound to, (laughs) (laughs) bound to happen. And, uh, initially it was so hard not to take those things personally and detach from the situation. And I think some of that just comes with age and maturity where, you know, my initial reaction, like when, when that little wing ding happened, you know, it was like our first incident. I was like, oh my gosh, like, like this really makes me mad. Like, I can't believe this person did this to my airplane. Yeah. And so it's, it's being able to separate those things and kind of leave. It's, it's like almost being an airline pilot. Like you leave work at work. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I try as much as you can't separate it from it when those things do happen. Uh, like we just had a, a, a 172, uh, this weekend that hit a bird uh, mm. in the same exact spot on the wing that it happened like a year ago. Oh God. Was that seven? seven <laughs> it was. Yet? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it was like, I don't know how, how it happened again in the same spot, but you know, it's a bummer, but it's like, it's part of the game. And so yeah. it's, it's that just, bird didn't want to get hit. Trust me. No, 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 no. <laughs> that bird's gone. Uh, <laughs> but that part, that part for sure. Uh, took a long time to kind of hone and, and learn to separate from. And so I think the only thing that keeps me up at night is we had, like we, I watch the scheduler and I look at night to make sure all the planes are checked in and, and like everything's there was secure. One time you texted me. Yep. Yep. I was stuck. <laughs> the weather was, it was like VFR all night long and it went like overcast a thousand. Poor planning. And I don't know what had happened, but yeah, I was stuck in Dodge center. I think I remember that. Yeah. And so that every night, you know, I'll look and make sure all the planes are back and nothing's out, mm-hmm. out overdue or anything. And, and it was such an innocuous text. Like, Hey, I just want to make sure you're still not enjoying your rental. <laughs> <laughs> like, no, I'm pretty miserable right now, actually. I'd much rather like, be at home. It's midnight. <laughs> it's, it's midnight. I'm eating Domino's pizza. That's yeah. So but yeah, that'd probably be the, the one thing that, you know, obviously we do everything we can to make it as safe as possible, but still kind of the the unknowns that at the end of the day yeah i guess on the topic of unknowns and safe as possible let's talk about the multi mm. yeah we we in the early days got a 310 cessna uh <laughs> well because no, yeah <laughs> which was the the reason the main driver behind it was the economics so aren't they terrible trainers they it's a lot <laughs> it's, it's a lot of airplanes that's like the, the worst thing you can do but if you can fly that you can fly anything it's very true you know? and I've, so yeah, i've been in one a couple uh, times we actually had some people that they actually weren't strong enough leg power wise to outrunner the yeah. outrunner it um <laughs> wow. and so the i mean the the reason behind it was oh, okay we're gonna get a twin trainer this is probably my biggest mistake to date and it was basically driven on uh, like acquisition cost of the plane it was like oh like you can buy one of these for the price of a 172 yeah you know like what a deal until you start getting the maintenance bills sure yeah <laughs> and, and insurance that's where... was insurance insurance was high but it wasn't because um, isn't now insurance just uh, insurance is a killer. super expensive yeah. right now do you think a multi is something that flight schools unnecessarily chase Sometimes I think sometimes you need it based on what you're offering. So if you're like a strictly career program, like you have to have it, but I'm always under that impression of, well, pick something and do it really well. And if you can't do it really well, or you don't have enough of them, just don't get into it. And right. so in a year we basically broke even on it. Uh, after it flew like 600 hours that mm-hmm. first year, which was a lot. Yeah. And a lot of people got their license in it. Uh, but the maintenance cost just wiped all that away. And so it was like, yeah. I started thinking about all the logistics and just 
the hassle. We had people coming from out of state. We had people coming from out of the country. I had a guy come from Nigeria. Wow. Straight up from Nigeria. I thought he was joking. Yeah. For a multi-time building block. Yeah. And uh, it, it was it was a fun experience, but it just in the end of the day, it didn't it didn't really do what I thought it was going to do, and it was easier for people to just go somewhere that already had a fleet of twins and just do their 10 hour, 15 hour multi add on and, and call it a day. And so I'm still under that belief that it's, it's just nice to have, but it's not necessary. Mm -hmm. And and at this point, how hard would it be to like ensure the instructors in it? I'm sure that that would be, well, then the issue is now that the airlines require 25 hours of multi, what's the incentive for the CFIs to go get their MEI and then actually instruct it. Right. Correct. Cause, Cause they actually hired you at 25. Yeah. Right? I, hit they 20, didn't. I hit 25.2 and I was like, I hit 25.0. I, like, I could have saved some. I went right like, off. Yeah. <laughs> they hired yeah. me so fast. Yeah. 25, yeah. nothing. It was like, yep. yeah. And that go. was, I mean, if you, if you needed a hundred, yeah. you'd be like, I mean, back in the day, instructors were like multi-time. I'll do anything yeah. to get in that plane and sit right seat. Yeah. So. Can you talk about bringing on the Cirruses and kind of what that's represented represented from a kind of branding? Because it yeah. seems to be like a, another tier. It is. It is definitely. Flight school that you don't see a lot. The, the Cirrus uh, training center kind of fell into our lap. Um We've been a serious training center now for oh, 2017, so about five years, coming on six. And the interesting thing is their brand very closely aligns with our brand. Um, we have different ways of, of going about it, but we're very similar. And so there's a lot of brand synergy of who we are and what we value and what they value and what they're trying to do. Like they're trying to introduce new people to general aviation as well. And show people that, hey, this is something you can get into and you can use this for business trips or leisure uh, and have this whole new serious life experience. And so when that came, uh, my first thought was, wow, this is really expensive. Yeah. <laughs> Who Who's going to, you know, who's really going to come fly these things? And because at the time, like we and we still aren't, we're not the most expensive. We're not the cheapest uh, flight school in, in town. But. At the time, it was kind of like, wow, this is a big jump, you know, from from a rental standpoint. And uh, the the support and kind of training materials and other things that Cirrus gave us definitely helped bridge that gap. And having a sales rep in the area was, like, really nice because we started to see, like, oh, you have a Cirrus online. We had interested customers who were thinking about buying one or um, wanted to lease one back. And so it kind of just grew from – you know, basically we started with one SR20. It was a jumpstart SR20. Mm -hmm. And now we're taking delivery of another 20 this month and a new 22 next month. So we'll be at six Cirruses. So awesome. we'll have three 20s and three 22s. Yeah. And I think the people love the modernness of it. They like the flight in and out icing. They like the avionics. They like the autopilot. And it's just a solid, the parachute is another huge driver for some people. We have some, some people who come in and they're like, my wife will not let me fly anything but the Cirrus. Then she doesn't care with, how much it costs. I work with students like it, that. <laughs> yeah. It has to have the parachute. And yeah. it's like, all right, like that's, yeah. that's understandable. And you know, we have some people that fly in a 172 and they transition to the Cirrus or. Mm -hmm. I had a student who did that. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's completely. He said, he said he'd never go back. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Once you, I mean, once you get in it and you have the air conditioning and all the safety features, it's I'll tell you, I'll tell you, it was, yeah. it was pretty tough in a day instructing to go from like the SR22T brand new million dollar airplane to 971. Yeah. The, the <laughs> lowest 152 that we could find on a lot. Like it was, it was really tough to go between those lessons, especially, <laughs> especially if, in the cold. Yeah. Oh, man. Or in the extreme hot. But yeah, it was brutal. Like, what's your level of involvement in setting the curriculum, and and do you wish that you had more or less involvement in that? Uh, As an instructor here personally, I didn't enjoy the curriculum mm -hmm. from time to time. There were things I did in a different order that I thought made more sense. Um, yeah, I mean, it's all it's it's revolving, right? It's never set in stone. It was like this is the only way. Um, I do have some say in it. Like in cert the way certain things are done. Yeah. What like, uh, like the big one is the delayed solo. 
Yeah, like, I was gonna say. Yeah, like you talk, yeah, let's talk yeah, about yeah. let's talk uh, about the delayed solo because when I soloed, I soloed at. I saw it at like 12 hours. Yeah, 12 yeah. Hours, I right? saw it at like 15. John one day yeah. was like, you're ready. It's <laughs> <laughs> all right. And, and it, it really came down to the the number one thing as a flight school that I've really been focused on is how do we reduce our liability and keep everybody as safe as possible? Yeah. Because it's a dangerous it's a dangerous sport, you mm-hmm. know? Like flight training is is not, you know, we make it as safe as possible, but it's really you know, like I said earlier, it's a daycare where you let children run around with knives. And so the premise behind that was these people aren't going to get their license anyways until they have all the requirements done. And you're going to be a way better pilot at 40 hours than you are at 15. You're going to have been exposed to more. You're going to have done night flights. You're going to have all your foggle time. And so it really just came down to why are we doing this? Was there an event that happened at the flight school? There, there wasn't. There, there, wasn't. there wasn't an event. Uh, it just, it just came down to common sense. And like some people were adamant, like, oh, we have to so, like, I have to solo at this time because my friend did it or something. And, and I think that used to be the stigma, right? Like that was. You oh talk, yeah, if you, you didn't talk solo, to anybody that's yeah. a little bit older, you know, if they're I don't know, sixties, seventies, when they were learning to fly back then, it's like. I mean, there's some if you didn't if you didn't have ten hours right like you know and you hadn't solo failure yeah you weren't a yeah. good pilot you know and there's some flight schools now like they won't even let you solo in the practice area like they put such a grip on yeah. your ability mm-hmm. to solo which is I don't know I mean good and bad but yeah I like I like that part of the curriculum when I was instructing here. Well, it's safer it took a for little the bit of pressure off me too. Yeah. Right? And it was easy to explain, to... right? You could explain it to people that wanted to solo right off the bat, right? To explain to them why we're doing it and why it's happening this way. And most of the time, I never had anybody push back after explaining it to them. No, because it, it logically makes sense. And I wish the FA would change it because I don't think there is. There was a time and a place where it made sense when you didn't have all this controlled airspace and you yeah. didn't have towers and it was just a grass field in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, you can you can take off and go get all the stuff you need to get done and hit all these requirements and have safe pilots sooner. But that's just not the era we're in anymore. Especially at this airport here with parallel runways and jets constantly taking off and landing on one and, and airplanes, you know, trying to do pattern work. Well, it just on the come, other. I mean, it comes down to a simple, simple fact of if you have an engine failure mm-hmm. on takeoff at 400 feet, would you rather experience that solo at 15 hours or 50 hours? Right. <laughs> you know, which Neither. one are you going to be able to handle? Neither. <laughs> Neither. <laughs> Neither. But which one, which one statistically is probably going to have a better outcome? It's probably the, the latter one. Yeah. 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 What does your level of involvement have to be with the uh, airport? Uh, like how often are you meeting with tower talking to them? It's an ongoing relationship. Have, what, what are their complaints about you? Uh, just how big we are, (laughs) how much, how much congestion we cause, I think is probably the biggest one. Um, but I mean, it's a, it's a big ecosystem out here, right? Like aviation, small, small world. So it's not only, it's not just the tower, the airport, but it's other operators too. You know, we have relationships with most of the other operators on the field and we do some form of business with them in, in some way or another and vice versa. They send us business, we send them business. Uh, but there are. You know, the MAC, the Metropolitan Airport Commission is one that we we work with quite closely. And it's it's a two-way street. Like, we have things that we need to uphold on our end of the deal, and they have things that they need to uphold on their end of the deal. And it's, a, it's an interesting world being in a MAC-controlled system. Um, and some people complain about it, and, you know, there's extra taxes and and uh fees that come with that but the flip side is there's also a lot of protections Mm -hmm. Uh, and one of the big ones uh, that a lot of people don't know about was during covid the when the stay home order happened uh the mac actually got their attorneys involved and said no we're not we're not doing this to our, our airport businesses mm-hmm. and got their legal counsel involved. And so then it was a federal versus state thing. And at that level, we all know who wins usually. Mm-hmm. And so they, they, they protect the operators on the airport uh, and don't allow, you know, more people to be showing up and starting businesses and other things. If it doesn't make sense for the ecosystem. Mm-hmm. So fun, fun relationship both ways. So Matt went to a, different flight school 
than than I did. I went to InFlight. What did Matt miss out on by not coming to InFlight? Yeah, the I think the you know the biggest one is that you have a trusted partner throughout the entire process that is going to be there for you even when you're gone. Whereas if you go to some of these bigger academy type schools, it's not as personable. And so those, those relationships and, and connections that you make uh, don't carry over as much. And so having, having us, you know, throughout your training and, and helping guide you and, and just walking that journey with you is, is actually beneficial uh, more so than some places where it's like, here you go, do it on your own. We're just really, we're a well-oiled machine. And mm-hmm. so we know how this process works mm-hmm. and we provide a good experience. And it is, it is, we have core values, right? Like customer first, safety focus, be professional, have fun. And we, we, we embody them though. I mean, we live and die by those. And that's like, as long as everybody's following those, that's, that's how we succeed. Mm-hmm. And I think that shows in our product and the experience that people have versus elsewhere is because they actually live those values with us, even though they're not the ones like it's not at the forefront of their minds, but it is in our mind of having fun and making sure it's safe and being professional and putting their needs first. And like, they are super, super important. Let's talk about staffing. Hmm. That'll be the last one. So how do you, how do you kind of pick who you want to be your instructors? Because a lot of people want to work here. You treat mm-hmm. the CFIs better than most schools. Yeah, it's yeah. a it's a competitive process. We we do a, a more thorough interview than most places do. So we on initial like application, we'll do the the regular phone screen thirty minutes, just getting to know them and making sure that like they're we're a good fit basically, and then. After that, we will actually send them a uh, software that we have um, that is a behavioral assessment, and it it breaks down kind of some of their personality and behavior traits that we can see how they fit into what we are looking for out of that position. And so we love technology. Like technology is huge. We'll invest almost anything into technology if it helps us be better. Because when you hire a bad hire costs you way more in the long run than a, than a good hire. And so we send them that assessment we make sure it's a good fit. And then that assessment will actually give us behavioral traits that we can use on the interview. And then we'll schedule an interview. It'll be an in-person interview. We usually have them teach something out of, you know, the standardized format of either slow flight or stalls or steep turns. And then We'll do like an HR panel with them and just go through some basic stuff and make sure that they have the lifestyle skills and like the people skills that we're looking for. Cause we're very people focused. We're not just like, Oh yeah, show up and fly this plane. It's you're going to be teaching people and like making sure people are having a good experience. And so after that, then we do a reference check. We actually call all their references. We make sure stuff lines up and then we do a full blown background and credit check. Uh, which is also kind of a step above what most places do. And so it's a very thorough experience, but it's also because one, we're investing a lot into you. We're paying you really well and your customers that are going to be working with you expect a lot. And so Mm -hmm. we need a higher tier of people uh, for those positions. And so it's, it ebbs and flows the, the hiring does, but we, we have not had a lot of flight schools have had issues finding candidates and that we just have never had that issue, even in the last four or five years. People are like, "Oh, where are we going to get instructors?" And it's if you have a good place to work and you pay them well and you you offer good flight hours and a safe place to to do their job, it it works out. Now the real thing is at the end of the interviews, we ask ourselves, "Is there a ninety percent better chance?" like a 90% or better chance that this person is going to be a success with us. And if it's not 90%, we just don't hire them. Yeah. Even if they're like, they meet everything, but you're not feeling good about it. It's not worth it because the damage, we call it management debt. Basically the, the longer you keep somebody in your company that is essentially hurting you on a daily basis with whether it's poor work performance or they're, they're causing some kind of issues 
uh, eventually they're going to make a huge mistake with those, you know, ticking off a customer or bending an airplane. And that's the day that all that debt that you accrued comes due. So it's easier to just jettison and have the right person who wants to be here who's going to do a good job. And you, than, can, be, you can afford to be picky here because enough yeah, people want to yep. be here. It's like, okay, well, like if you can't uphold the core values and, and live to our standard, then like it's not – it's not even a personal thing. It's just like we have a business to run and we need the right person in the right seat. And if that's not you, like there's other places around that probably will gladly take you yeah. because they don't, they don't value those things. They just need, they need the CFI more than they need the, exactly. Than they need the brand. Exactly. Protection. Exactly. How often do you have your own students that you say, we're, we're not going to hire you. Like you, we're sorry. We, we liked you. Thank you for spending your money here, but we just can't see you instructing here. I say about fifty percent of the time. Fifty percent. Yeah. Uh, sometimes it's it's just a, a demand thing. Like we don't have a need for it. We're full up on instructors. Uh, the one thing that uh, that a lot of people don't realize is that their entire time with us, if they is the interview, is the interview basically. It's mm-hmm. how do you interact with everybody else and what kind of customer were you? Were you super? you know, rude to everybody and demanding and did you break things, you know, Mm -hmm. along the way that, you know, seem to be a repetitive process. How often do you see people come through where you go, you probably shouldn't be a pilot. This probably isn't your future. Uh, I'd say it's actually pretty rare. Um, in the, all the years doing this, there's maybe been two or three that I've seen that it's like, ah, like this just isn't clicking. And usually it's, it comes back to it's just their life and what they've been doing for the last, you know, it depends on age, depends on what they were exposed to as a kid. It's like the people who are very hand-eye coordinated, who grew up doing things like riding dirt bikes or driving stick shifts or, you know, playing sports, like they excel at this super fast. And then those that- Yeah, but at the same time, like, I don't think there's very much in jet world, you know, that's hand-eye. Yeah, but you got to get there. You got to get there, right? <laughs> yeah, you know, you that's not the there. hard you part. Get yeah. there, but you, there's plenty of people. Getting know, there is the hard part. There's though. plenty of people that I've seen get there and then not be able to do it. Yeah, yeah. Know? I mean, and then and oh, then sure. at all this. Right? Some of it, so I mean, some the, it's yeah. Yeah. Is there some? Is there something? Have you been able to make that snap judgment on people? Like no, before, no, it's hard um, because like you could be a really good student going through private commercial instrument, right? Like doing it relatively quickly, not super fast or not super slow and like, but taking enough time for you to make it click. And then you get to the airlines and they make you, they force you to do it in one month, two months, one day, two days, right? Whatever the, the, you're trying to do. And if you just can't process it that fast, like then you're out. Right. So like, it doesn't mean you're a bad pilot or you're a slow learner or anything. Like, I don't know. I know there's tons of stories of people that, that are like that. Right. It's like no training failures, nothing. They get to an airline and they just can't keep up, you know? Yeah, and they, that's age. That I from... guess I would figure that they're my 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 worldview on that is there would be something about them where you would be able to tell I mean there's I've, a quickness or I've not. I've seen people go from one regional to a, a different carrier and fail training mm-hmm. at a different carrier. And they had hundreds of hours. I knew a lot of CRJ. I knew a lot of guys when I went through initial training that they were helicopter pilots in the military, killed it for years, yeah, and then they can't keep up. Badass people with a with a jet, right? And it's it's different, you know. And the training is different, and they haven't, you know, they maybe they haven't been in training mode for years, right? They haven't learned a new airplane or even an airplane, right? They're going from a helicopter to an airplane, and you yeah, know, obviously I, they got to have some fixed wing time and fixed wing rate, ratings and stuff, but. It just comes down to everybody learns at a different pace. Yeah. I think if, if the airlines and corporate and all these places had an unlimited time budget right. to train everybody, right. 99% would get through. I think that's the, the benefit of doing your flight training at a place like in-flight rather than, you know, a university or some other type of academy place. You're not, you're not committed to, right? You're not requiring people shell out 70, 80, 90, $100,000 all at once, all at then, once to do this and then finding crushed. out right? They're paying as they go, right? There's a lot of, I instructed a lot of students that came here for their private before they went off to North Dakota or Mankato State or Embry-Riddle, right? They get their private before 
And then, you know, because that's an opportunity if they don't like it or they're not good at it or it's not what they thought it is but to be, or it was going to be, then they can they can pivot and, and do something yeah. different, right? And I think that's the joy here is like you might have some – the odds of somebody that like quits their job and goes all in at in-flight, it happens, right? Yeah. Like, But it's probably a lot less. It's between. way less. I waited a long time to quit right. my job. It's way less, but like I, I quit. I mean, I had my private, you right? But I quit my job and moved out to Denver, did it all out there, right? Like, I dove all in, but granted, but I had my private, yeah, right? So, like, I knew. Private. You knew how you were going to But there were, there were plenty of kids that didn't, and they got sent home, right? They did have people. Yeah. They do have people like that at those, you know, yeah. flight schools that are going zero to hero in six months. Correct. And I think I think that there is a... And those the that does exist. I just don't think that needs to money. be here. It doesn't need to be here, but at the same time, that would be a blind spot then because we're so customer service. We can get it like there's right. Not, maybe you're giving some. Maybe you're giving that one person a false hope. One maybe student. I've only had one student that couldn't get to solo, and I signed off like I signed off. Yeah, a bunch I had one. People. I couldn't. Do I only had one pe- one person that I couldn't get to solo. I had two. Well, I'm a better instructor, and I think <laughs> you were doing it for longer. <laughs> no, but I just think that because we're so able to get people across the finish line here, mm-hmm. that their success at while a success is also indicative of potential problems down the road because it all it all builds, right? I think that's why people like flying and the flight training aspect in general though is because of that like border between not everybody can do this there's still a barrier to entry and it takes hard work and some people don't make it Mm -hmm. and i think nothing in life's really that enjoyable if you can just walk in and leave with it you know Mm -hmm. that's i think about that often as to right you got to remember you know remember that there's not that many pilots less than like one percent of the population yeah, i think there's not that many pilots right and like my wage is high it does <laughs> it does right but like seriously it's not for everybody right they hit one little bump of turbulence in a 172 and and it's over right yeah like, or they get motion sickness super easy or yeah yeah that's a lot of not ideal and not everybody wants the lifestyle so no, there's it's not for everybody it sucks yeah fortunately. should we do some trivia yeah, yeah you, you guys yeah, can do i'm gonna so Ooh. i've got I've got six, I believe, six airplanes that I found on controller <laughs> of varying models, age, time. I'm going to read you the the little description. You can oh, ask. They're for all any... going to be European, or no? Price, no, they're they're all. It's like 172s, yeah. right? Stuff like that. Right yeah. rules, or how is it? So I was thinking. I mean, we could do whatever you want. I was thinking Trevor could give his answer, and then you could guess over under, just to see where we're at. I, okay, I was going to say we could alternate. Who guesses the number first? Sure, whatever, whatever you want. But I've got, I've got six, uh, six of them, and they, you, they should be. They're airplanes that you're, you're semi familiar with. So the first one we'll start off with is a 1976 172 November model. Mm-hmm. It has uh, 1400 hours total time, and it's just, it's kind of, you know, like a cream puff. Nothing, no upgraded avionics or anything special. Oh, we're doing price valuation. Yeah, what do you think? What do you think that airplane is selling for on controller? I look <sighs> these were from last night. These are fresh numbers, screenshots. I'd say between 110 and you 140. A, you have to guess a number. Uh call it 115. I'll what? say 130. Okay, so you're going over. Yeah, it was it's they're asking $180,000. I don't know if these are Ooh, fair so values. I'll send wow. you it. 10. That's just one down the road. Zero. Somebody's, somebody's <laughs> taking a. I'll send you a swing at the inflation special. <laughs> but all right, so yeah, nineteen seventy six, one seventy two, and one hundred eighty grand. Looks nice. I've seen other ones lately for hundred. Yeah, so that's just it. It looks nice. We'll, we'll we'll review later. All right, st- sticking with the one seventy two theme, a two thousand seven S model Skyhawk SP with. 8,300 hours on the airframe or on the airplane total time. Is it G1000? Um, 2007. Okay. Yes, it is G1000. 230. Let me go 270. You're closer. 340. Jeez Louise. Wow. $340,000 for an 07 <laughs> 172. Once inflation started happening, I just stopped looking <laughs> at out. values. I was like, nope. Here we go. 2019 Beechcraft Bonanza, a G36 Bonanza. It has um, that, that total time, 
172 hours on it. So a 2019 G36 Bonanza with 172 hours. It's obviously got G1000 in the works. I'm going to go a million. I'm going to say 700,000. Oh, come on. A million fifty. You're 50 grand off. Yeah. A million dollars? A million bucks. A million bucks. Right in in Florida. Why why would you ever do that? I don't know. I was talking to a guy. Like for a million, I could get get a PC-12 at a million. I was out in California talking with a beach beach sales and service place and they said this was a couple of years ago they said only they delivered like seven bonanzas worldwide wow for the entire year in yeah. like 2019 that's crazy but yeah it's because they're a million dollars mm-hmm. all right here we go a 2008 cirrus sr22 it's a g3 it's a tn turbo normalized mm. it has uh 885 hours on it. So an 08 G3 TN. I'm going to say 600,000. I'm going to go like 520. 499. Yeah. That's that's good. That's the first one you were both over. (laughs) (laughs) So that's a good deal. Whoever's selling the 08 (laughs) series, they're losing money. (laughs) Price right. Here we go. This one, a, a brand new 2022 206 stationary turbo oh, brand new 2022 it has 25 hours of total time what's a basically brand new 2022 turbo t06 going for 206 i'm gonna go 1.1 1.3 right at 995 so mm. million bucks yeah that's crazy had to be somewhere near the bonanza yeah yeah that's yeah yeah, brand new. The Bonanza was three years older. About right, same price. All right. I don't see if Drew remembers the price on this one. He asked about one of them. This is a 1973 185 Amphib. Mm. And it's got just shy of 3,000 hours on it. How many hours on the engine? Uh, do, do, do. Engine time, 528 since major overhaul. It's got the IO 520 in it. I'm going to go, man, I want to say like 380, but it's probably more because of inflation. <laughs> Drew, what do you think? Do you remember what I told you? I think it's 230. No. Is it 170? 330. 330. Okay. So yeah. That's a pretty good price. It's a nice, it was yeah. a nice, it's a nice looking airplane. Didn't have anything upgraded on the avionics or anything, but that's one thing I don't, that's like, it's so interesting in aviation, you have these little like side pockets where it's like, that's like a whole different world. Like yeah. all the amphib people. Oh and, yeah. And then you have like the light sport crowd and the, yeah. the sea ray crowd. And so it's, it's interesting to see. Well, all right. we'll continue this conversation another time. See ya. Thank you. See ya. See ya. <laughs> This was another episode of Living in Flight. If you liked this episode, please make sure to subscribe for more exclusive aviation content. Have any topic ideas or want to be featured on our podcast? Send us a message at listen at livinginflight.com. Thank you for joining us. And until next time, this is Living in Flight. <laughs>